0: In 2010, director David Yates gave the world a lonely, penultimate
1: entry into a fabled cinematic saga. In 2021, we keep the theme of New Beginnings going with our first-ever Welsh whiskey. The film is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Part 1. The whiskey is Pendaren, Madeira finish. And we'll review them both. This is the the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are kicking off season number five. Brad, can you believe we're in the fifth season already? Bro, I am just
0: amazed that we've made it like (laughs) mostly out of this pandemic, let alone three years into
1: a podcast. I do love how our seasons are kind of like seasons of the show Survivor, where, you know, it's not really a year long, like, that show's yeah. been on for 20 <laughs> years, but they're in season 48, you know? Yeah, uh, 41, actually. <laughs> um,
0: right now, I th- I think uh, uh, Danny is my favorite. He's a front runner for me. So, do you actually uh, watch Survivor? You know, Bob, I'm actually watching it right now. <laughs> we found the one thing that Brad keeps up with. Wow, man, good for Dude, you. I am so far removed from culture, like, it's not even funny. Like, I just got a smartphone, like, two years ago, Brad, I think.
1: believe me, we know. <laughs> we, we know how far <laughs> this This podcast is testament to that, my friend. So, yeah, man, the one part of culture I keep up with is a TV show that's 20 years old. And a movie that's 11 years old. Today, we're yeah. talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Stupid elf! You could've killed me! Dobby never meant to kill. Dobby only meant to maim or seriously injure. Uh, How dare you take a witch's wand? How dare you defy your masters? Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf. And Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. This is, if I had to pinpoint one of the Harry Potter films that I think kind of carries a reputation for being a lesser entry, it would be this one. We both established that we think Order of the Phoenix might be the worst movie in this series. I think the general population would either pinpoint this movie or Chamber of Secrets as being the worst one. And for that reason, I've actually been really excited to talk about this movie because, you know, good or bad, whether you like it or not, I have to say, I think this might be the most unique entry in the whole Harry Potter series. Yeah, Bob, I I personally coming
0: into this was kind of thinking the same thing. I, I've always known that a lot of my friends, I feel like the general public doesn't care for this movie quite as much. They They would like in general seem to prefer the final movie. Over it, and for me, I've always really liked Episode Seven in the uh, Harry Potter saga. <laughs> episode so, Seven, I love it. Yeah, you know, I, like <laughs> I've I've always really liked this entry, and watching it for the podcast just confirmed it for me. I would probably put this as one of my
1: top three of the whole franchise. Yeah, it's a really interesting movie, isn't it? Because I, I feel like I can understand why people don't like it. It has a very different vibe. It has a really different rhythm than the rest of the movies. And it doesn't, you know, the seventh book, from what I understand, because I haven't read it, uh, but just seeing the movies, I know that it's it's a departure. Like, it doesn't follow the academic school year the way that all the other books do. And You know, that's always one of those funny things to joke about. Like, why does Voldemort always wait until the end of spring semester to pull off his big thing? Well, you know, this time around, they're not in school. They're off hunting for these horcruxes. And even though it kind of does follow the same seasonal calendar, you don't have those moments that you always fall back on in the other movies of, all right, now it's time for a Quidditch match or now it's time to see Hogwarts decked out for Christmas like you said in your intro here, it's a really lonely movie. You're you're just following these characters as the emotional weight of this journey is is starting to weigh down on them. And in a lot of ways, Brad, it reminded me of the last movie we watched for this show, which is Return of the King. I feel like if there is one entry in the Harry Potter universe that really focuses on the toll that this is taking on its characters, it's this movie.
0: Yeah, I, I think that you see it from the very start. Like, they open this movie with a freaking punch. Like, Hermione obliviating her memory from her parents is heart wrenching. Yeah. Like, like you just know from the very get go of this film, you know, from the very
1: opening shot of, uh, Bill Knight. Sorry, is it Naihe? You Nighy? know, I don't know how if he says Naihe or just Nai, and it's so weird because you know in America we think of Bill Nye as a very different person, but right. he is a well-known British actor. Uh, however, you want to pronounce it, Brad, I'll roll with it. Should we call him Bill Nye the Octopus guy, <laughs> Bill Nye the Actor guy? Yeah, oh, there we go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I so like from that opening scene with Bill Nye. Like just straight up in his eyes to Hermione destroying, you know, the memory of her existence from her parents all the way to that. I think the scene that really did it for me is when they go into the they go into Grimald place and the the specter of Dumbledore kind of charges at them. And then she casts a spell to detect if there's anybody else in the house and she says, as the camera like pulls away from her in the hallway and fades to black, you hear her Hermione saying, we're all alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. that that line is just so daggone brilliant because she is saying it in a good sense. Like, we're all alone. There's nobody here to catch us. But you can hear that tinge of sadness in her voice of like, we're all alone. There's no one here to help mm-hmm. us. That sets the tone for this entire movie,
1: and I'm, I'm in. I love it. I think David Yates knocks this one out of the park. I have so many things I want to say. Like, Brad, I have to be honest here. I don't think this is the best Harry Potter movie, but I'm probably more excited to talk about this one than I have been in a long, long time, and I think it's just because this is maybe the least talked about of all the movies, and I think it really deserves more discussion than it gets, but... We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. We need to jump into Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. Brad, I think we need to carry over the uh, the strict 60 second limit that we implemented last season because, man, we were able to just fly through Brad Explains last season.
0: Yeah, it's kind of nice to get through it real quick. Um, I, I've set some pretty amazing records with brad explains most most notably i think was gone with the wind which lasted a full 600 seconds <laughs> was, so uh
1: it was nearly yeah, as I long think, as the film itself as i it, recall <laughs> i mean that's the goal every week right <laughs> all right man can you break down the plot of this movie in 60 seconds or less i think i can uh, voldemort and his cronies kill the
0: minister of magic pretty much take over the wizarding world Sending Harry, Ron, and Hermione on the run, they do not return to Hogwarts, but instead they continue Dumbledore's search for the Horcruxes. Uh, Not only do they have to find these Horcruxes, but they also have to find a way to destroy them because they are nearly invulnerable. They realize that the Sword of Gryffindor can do this. They invade the Ministry of Magic to steal a locket, which is Salazar Slytherin's locket from Um, Dolores Umbridge, which they succeed at. Ron, in the words of all our British friends, is an enormous git. Uh, He's probably the worst character of the movie. Of all the movies, we hate Ron. Ron is the worst. Uh, But he finally comes back to help them after running off like a little baby. And they destroy some horcruxes. And they escape some snatchers. And Dobby dies. And Hedwig dies. One second. Oh, man, you did it. sad,
1: man. You did it in 59 seconds. Look at that.
0: Dude, I'm, I'm is, on point, that bro. That's perfectly this timed, is a, This man. is a new season, man. <laughs> You're a new man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm going to go 59 seconds every single week. All right, Brad, there are a number of directions we can go, but I think that you've kind of already tipped off where this naturally needs to go, and that is yeah, Intaki. Ron is the worst. He's a git. But don't expect me to be grateful just because now there's another damn thing we've got to find. I thought you knew what you signed up for. Yeah. I thought I did too. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't quite understand. What part of this isn't living up to your expectations? Did you think we were going to be staying in a five-star hotel, finding a crux every other day? You thought you'd be back with your mum by Christmas? I just thought, after all this time, we would have actually achieved something. I thought you knew what you were doing. I thought Dumbledore would have told you something worthwhile. I thought you had a plan. I told you everything Dumbledore told me. And in case you haven't noticed, we have found a Horcrux already. Yeah, and we're about as close to getting rid of it as we are to finding the rest of them, aren't we? He's a (laughs) git. But no, seriously, I think that we always talk about performances on this show. And I think that the performance that I want to talk about the most is Hermione, Emma Watson. Because we've talked about how Emma Watson is kind of up and down throughout the series the same way that Daniel Radcliffe is kind of up and down throughout the series. But if this movie belongs to one character, this is really Hermione's movie. Watching David Yates leave the camera on Emma Watson and letting her just kind of go to work, she's like revelatory in this movie. Where was this person in some of these other movies? She is absolutely phenomenal. And I don't just mean she's phenomenal for like an Emma Watson performance, which sounds insulting. But like if you've seen some of these other Harry Potter movies, she can be downright wooden at times. And in this movie, oh, my gosh, man, the level of emotion that she is constantly conveying is just next level. She's so good, Brad. Yeah.
0: And I think she also kind of dives back into what makes Hermione Granger a unique fictional character. Like, you really get her not just being emotional and really, like, drawing the group together, keeping them focused, keeping them moving forward. She also draws back into, like, what makes her her. She studies a lot. She is intellectual. She has a way of explaining things that is just brilliant. And so I I think that the writers and David Yates... Really just tacked into what makes Hermione Granger a great character. And Emma Watson, like you said, Bob, her performance in this movie is fantastic. Without her really stepping up her game... I think I might be in the camp with a lot of other people that that don't care for this movie as much. But
1: as it is, I'm I'm with you, man. She is out of this world. Well, and I I touched on this a little bit just a moment ago, but I talked about the rhythm of the movie. And I think that we can definitely get into the filmmaking aspects and how this movie feels different just from a pacing and directorial point of view. But the decision to split the final book into two movies was kind of momentous at the time this hadn't really been done before It this was done you know well before twilight or the hunger games did it and a lot of people saw it as kind of a cash grab and and you know i think if we're being honest here it, it kind of is a cash grab but i think this is one of those rare instances where splitting a final book into two parts for the film really really works on paper how much plot is there in this movie compared to other harry movies The Harry movies, Harry Potter movies like there's definitely less. But because of that, I think they this movie feels very relaxed to me, even though there's like a tension building throughout, like you really get the sense of the slog that they're going through on a day to day basis. And because they need to kind of fill the runtime here they build in like emotional outlets for these characters that they usually don't have time for in these movies. And it really helps. I think the series overall, and I I think it comes out most of all in the performances, like Emma Watson is given some breathing room to kind of do what she does best as an actress. I even noticed it with Rupert Grint as Ron, you know, the scene where he comes back uh, after his long <laughs> absence in the movie And he's describing this incredible, like, spiritual experience he had of being led back to Harry and Hermione. It's the best acting that Ron does in the entire series. And it's because I kind of noticed as an actor, he needs to operate at kind of a different rhythm than the plot of these movies often allows him to do. And so the fact that this movie is kind of shaggy and is kind of slower paced, I think, actually really benefits the performances and it benefits the series overall.
0: Yeah. And the other thing I really love about this film is that it continues the pattern set in The Half Blood Prince uh, that David Yates just wants to explore what does it mean for these three children to be best friends? And you have that in so many little moments, like when Harry and Ron, you know, right after the spiritual moment you were just describing, Bob. <laughs> when Harry, you know, Ron is, you know, asking like, well, when is Hermione not going to be mad at me? And Harry goes, oh, just keep talking about that little ball of, of light that entered your heart. And <laughs> I think she'll be okay. Like little moments like that are kind of peppered throughout the movie. And they just, they're heartwarming. They, they remind you that these are just 17-year-olds that in the midst of fighting the evil dark lord of darkness and doom and death and sadness... They're just kids. They yeah. like each other. They're trying to be friends. They're trying to support each other as best as they know how. Mm-hmm. And I I think that they really continue where they left off with that in, from, you know, from the
1: sixth movie into the seventh. Well, and I think the sixth and seventh movies are really in kind of prime position when we think about the overarching story of Harry Potter. And we, you know, we talked about this with Lord of the Rings, how we both loved the Two Towers, because there's something about that kind of middle chapter where hope seems lost and maybe your heroes win a small victory, but there's still like that that doom and gloom that's hanging over everything. And it, it it carries a sense of tension into the last chapter. And that is really at play here. You know, you had it at the end of the sixth movie when Dumbledore dies and you have it in this movie where I, I think the perfect kind of encapsulation of the tone of this movie is. You know, Ron has abandoned Harry and Hermione. Harry and Hermione are alone and Harry turns on the radio and there's a song on and he just walks over to Hermione, who is who's been crying for days and days and they just start dancing. And they have this really great scene where, you know, they're they're twisting and turning and they finally start laughing. And it's this really brief moment of joy in an otherwise really kind of sullen movie. And it's a reminder that. They are fighting for something. You know what I mean? Like that what Voldemort is ultimately fighting for is is empty and hollow. And even though it's really hard to see right now, like the love that these characters have for each other is what's going to continue to carry them forward. And then as soon as that kind of joyous realization hits, they kind of go back to being sullen again, because I think the weight of everything hits them. And. You know, again like they're they're kind of toying with this will they won't they thing with Harry and Hermione, like are they gonna ultimately become a couple or is it not gonna work? And there's that at play too where they don't want to let themselves, you know, kiss each other and it it just kind of falls back into oh yeah, and we're getting chased by the dark lord <laughs> and it ends in silence and they just kind of walk away from each other. And I think that allowing the scenes of this movie to kind of end in that fashion Like the rest of the series wouldn't do anything like that. You know what I mean? Like there'd always be a quippy one liner or something to end a scene, even as recently as the sixth movie. And this time around, they're just kind of like, no, like we are we're going to let this thing breathe. We're going to give it the room that it needs, because I think to have the emotional impact it needs to have, we can't be moving at a, a lightning pace here.
0: Yeah, and I think that it really is the pacing that does it for me in this movie, that with all the performances that are great, with the bits of action that kind of open the movie, once you get to that scene where Harry, Ron, and Hermione are in Grimmauld Place, Hermione says, I, you know, we're alone, from there on out till nearly the end of the film, it is a slow-paced, relaxed movie That has tension at every moment of the way. Mm -hmm. You're always nervous about them being caught. You're always nervous about them making a misstep, which by the end of the movie, they do. Yeah. You know, they have made a misstep. Uh, I I think the other thing that really got me about this movie is like, I, I know it must be easy to be in like Europe and like Scotland and some of the places in England And just, like, set up a really nice high-end camera and just take beautiful (laughs) vistas, right? Like, I'm pretty sure I could have shot a few of those shots, and it would have turned out great because the landscape's just so daggone beautiful. Right. But holy cow, did they take their time with the cinematography and choosing the right shots— to display how lonely these characters were. Like you just get these wide sweeping vistas and you just see Harry, Ron and Hermione or their tent or something about them just teeny tiny, Mm -hmm. like off in the distance. And
1: I just, I loved that, dude. And yet, weirdly, this one has the least kind of cinematic feel to it. Does that make sense? Like, you know, the first two movies, you get the vibe that these were filmed on like a soundstage. And then, you know, the next few movies, it's much more quirky and you've got your Alfonso Cuaron kind of thing going on. But even in the sixth movie, it, it has this kind of like veneer or like, you know, gloss of Hollywood to it. This movie, like it's a it's a new cinematographer and it looks like an indie drama. Like it reminded me of the way that Spike Jones shot uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Like, it's kind of shaky cam and a lot of handheld stuff. The color palette is very naturalistic to the point where you kind of sometimes forget that you're watching a movie about magic people. Like, and then all of a sudden you just notice that, oh, yeah, Daniel Radcliffe has a wand in his hand and he can cast spells, too. Like, in in all the other movies, whenever somebody would go to do a spell, the camera would pull back or it would pull up into a crane shot. And it would very much emphasize, like, the magical nature of what was going on. And in this one, it just feels much more grounded. It feels much more real. And like I said, it feels almost like an indie movie where characters are just kind of happen to be shooting each other with all these spells all the time. I really love that they leaned into that. And you notice it like towards the end of the movie when they're getting chased through the woods by what are they called snatchers or something? Yeah. And, you know, like the shutter speed of the film stock they're using changes to the point where it looks like Saving Private Ryan. Like, it's just it's a very different look that this series to this point had not leaned into yet, but I think it really works for the story they're trying to tell here. Yeah. I mean, even at the start of the film, uh, they spend a lot of time in
0: London, you know, kind of wandering around, figuring out where to go, spending time in a cafe, uh, ordering cappuccinos at a really dingy diner, which maybe that's the thing you do in Britain. I don't know, <laughs> but like they, they spend so much time in London at the start And they're just in like their nice clothes and they just feel like they are fully immersed in the normal human world. Mm -hmm. And I will say, like, that was something that for me, the first time I watched the movies was a little bit jarring. Like, I, you know, Bob, I know you didn't read all the books, but for me, getting into the movies, it was strange to think about the fact that this was and I know that this might sound dumb. But it's almost strange to think about this fact that Harry Potter was set in the real world sometimes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the movies really hammer that home that they are in London. They're, you know, drinking coffee at a diner. They're getting on the subway. They're, you know, they're facing traffic like that was like hammered home in the movies in a way that I don't think they do in the books. And in this film in particular, I think it really adds to the drama, adds to the weight of what they're doing in fighting
1: Voldemort. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And, you know, I've just been kind of thinking about this as you've been talking. I don't know that there's ever been a recurring film series, you know, outside of like the MCU. But like, you know, one IP where each entry into that saga is so tonally different than the last. Like the two Chris Columbus movies into Alfonso Cuarón, into Mike Newell, and then into 567 of Harry Potter – each movie really strikes a completely different tone and a lot of times it's different visually and i think you're right brad you know aside from maybe that kind of jarring transition from chamber of secrets to prisoner of azkaban the transition here to like what they're trying to present visually and even you know thematically and and pacing wise it really is a jarring shift and i think that like we said, for a lot of people, this one stands out. It really does stick out like a sore thumb in a way that I think a lot of people haven't really been able to kind of embrace it and, and grasp it. But especially on rewatch, this one holds up really, really well for me, at least.
0: Well, and I can only imagine like trying to watch all of these in like a month or something. <laughs> yeah. But for for me, watching them through two at a time. I think that this is a refreshing change for the for the franchise. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I felt that way when I read The Deathly Hallows. You know, I know some people who didn't care for the final book quite as much because it's vastly different than the other books. You don't go to Hogwarts until the end of the book. You don't see them interacting with professors and classes and, you know, fighting with Snape over potions homework. and it's just vastly different than the rest of the yeah. series. And and so, yeah, the tonal shift from six to seven just makes sense to me. And I I love it. I really, truly think that David Yates hit his stride in the sixth movie and is just skating on a beautiful ice
1: <laughs> in this seventh movie. Now, before we heap too much praise on it, I don't think this is a perfect movie, Brad, and I don't know if you're with me, but I do think this is probably about 15 to 20 minutes too long. I think there are a few moments where, yes, like we we understand the rhythm. We understand that this is a slog for the characters, but you're kind of making it a slog for me, too. You know, when they when they venture to um, is it called Godric's Hollow or, you know, where, where Harry yeah. was born. That sequence is way too extended for me. Um, There were way too many times where, you know, they enter a building and they're trying to build the suspense. So there are long, silent periods. And like the third or fourth time they do that, I'm thinking to myself, "Okay, like you got me three times. You're not going to get me again. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So there are certain things about this movie that I think could have been tightened up a little bit. I, I don't think it's the best one in the series, but I'm with you in that. I do think this is an underrated movie. Both for the quality of the movie and also for the purpose that it serves, you know, for the, the saga overall. Well, I, I really think that the most important
0: thing we do then, Bob, is in in order to really get ready to bring out the terrible things about this film, we need to drink some whiskey. <laughs> I
1: think that's correct, Brad. What do you say we try this Pendarin? I believe it's pronounced Pendarin. Mm, it's not. Let's try it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do it, Bob. <laughs> All right. So today we are checking out Pandaren. This is a brand that we're going to be featuring for the next three weeks on the podcast. Uh, I reached out to the Pandaren people on Instagram because I found out that this is a whiskey that's made in Wales. And when was the last time, Brad, that you heard of a Welsh whiskey? I, uh, about 10 minutes ago when you told me it was a Welsh whiskey. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh my gosh, like we'd love to feature. A a new country for us on the podcast, and they were absolutely down for it. They sent us three beautiful bottles to sample. I cannot wait to get through all these. Pandaren has a really interesting history. Like It's only been in existence since the early 2000s, but at that time, it was the only distillery in operation commercially available whiskey in Wales. Wales at one time had been a pretty major distilling center, just like Ireland or Scotland. But in the early 20th century, that really just declined to the point where they were not known for making whiskey at all. But Pandaren is really leading you know, the, uh, the return, the charge back into the market for Welsh whiskey. Now, Brad, the, the interesting thing here is like, you know, in terms of. Uh, Like the terrain, I imagine it's closer to Scotland, but in terms of their distilling process and how they mature their whiskey in barrels, it's closer to Irish whiskey because they like to use ex bourbon barrels to mature their whiskey. So that's really similar to what we get with Irish whiskey. And this particular one is then finished in Madeira casks. Now, Madeira is a type of fortified wine. So we're going to get some of that kind of like sherry port kind of thing we might get on scotches in this as well. I'm really looking forward to trying this, Brad. And if the nose is any indication, like we're in for something really, really good here. Yeah, I was going to
0: say I I am getting honey and graham cracker and melon and a little bit of a kind of a grapey. You know, I think you're getting a little bit of that that Madeira finish on there. I really like this nose a lot. It has a lot of interesting notes going on. It is bright. It's bright
1: and intriguing i'm gonna give it an eight out of ten on the nose when i first popped the cork on this bottle the overwhelming smell that i got i mean the smell wasn't overwhelming but like the note that i got more than anything was bubble gum like classic pink bubble gum and i was like wow i have never had it something like that on a whiskey from this area of the world before and i think that that has kind of calmed down a little bit since i've opened the bottle but you're right brad these notes of melon and honey I mean, it's a little bit herbal, but not very much. It's like a very soft scotch to me. I'm hoping at least that it's going to be in that kind of sweeter realm as well. I really like this a lot. I'm with you, man. I'm going to give it an eight on the nose. Yeah. And that just jumps us into our
0: taste. Uh, For me, you you get a lot of that malt that comes through here on the palate um, but then I'm getting honey. There's some really nice soft spicy notes mm-hmm. going on here, like a little bit of baking spices. Um, there's a little bit of floral stuff going on here. It's uh, I'm gonna go back to my note of it's just bright. It's really, really nice. And you're right. It reminds me of an Irish whiskey, but with a kick of something special. Mm-hmm. I think I'll give it an eight and a half out of 10 on the taste.
1: Yeah, this is like really kind of towing the line in the best way possible between the Irish and Scotch worlds for me. It has the sweetness and the brightness of an Irish whiskey. You're right. It's honey sweet. I think the bourbon barrels, like you can really kind of sense them here, Brad. I got a lot of cinnamon on the flavor. But then again, you get that kind of grapey, raisiny thing that I think is coming from that Madeira finish. And it stays in that kind of very light, malty realm you get from, you know, some of the lighter scotches that we have. I I, I think I would give this to somebody who is new to the world of just European whiskey in general. Like this is a great entry point into obviously Welsh whiskey. But if you're not used to drinking Irish whiskey, this is a, a great place to start. If you're not used to drinking scotch, this is a great place to start. It's the best of both worlds. I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the flavor.
0: Yeah. And that brings us to our finish. Uh, for me, it is smooth. It's a little bit stronger than I would expect. This is sitting in 92 proof, which I, I really didn't expect to have quite the punch it would at the end, but it's just got this beautiful warmth um, that just sits on my throat for quite mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. So I, I I really like this finish. I will say that there's nothing complex about it. I, I'm not getting a lot of flavor notes on the finish that I was kind of hoping for, but it's still really solid. Uh, I'll give it an eight out of 10 on the finish.
1: I'm actually going to give it an eight as well. And I, I'm with you. I think this drinks a little bit hotter than 92 proof, but not in like a chest burn kind of way. It doesn't hug you going down. It's a little bit more prickly on the palate than I was expecting, but I think that kind of manifests as spices, you know, and you talked about it being a little bit spicy on the flavor as well. So if you like a little bit of heat, you know, on the palate, I think this is the way to go. I'm going to give it an eight on the finish. And then when we get into balance, you know, Brad, I think sometimes we ding Whiskies that don't have like a robust kind of punch to them um but you know that's not what this whiskey is this is a much softer more mild whiskey that introduces some really subtle and complex flavors as you go and i like that a lot and from nose to taste to finish this really delivers i think i'm going to give it a nine out of ten on the balance
0: (laughs) bob i think we're going to come out to the same score man nine (laughs) out of ten for me
1: as well All right. Yeah. Nothing, nothing different from you there. It's just a well balanced whiskey. Well, that takes us to the price. Now, again, like this is a little bit pricier than what you would find for like entry level scotches. I also don't want to just call this an entry level whiskey. Like this is their kind of flagship offering. But if you go to Pandaren's website, they have a ton of different expressions uh, but they're representative of a very, very small market in terms of Welsh whiskey. Like the, the importer that they use, I, I don't know how many different people they're working with in the States, but I imagine it can't be that many. So, you know, to be able to acquire this is going to cost you a little bit more than like, you know, a Johnny Walker who has tons of connections and is pumping out product at like a ridiculous volume. So, Brad, I was surprised to find that they do sell this in the state of Ohio. I know you looked up the price. What's it selling for currently in Ohio? $64.99. All right, $64. So I think working in its favor is it's it's incredibly rare in terms of like the part of the world that it's coming from. Working against it is the fact that it is a very mild whiskey. And I think a lot of times when people pay premium prices for whiskey they want something that's really going to like punch them and that's not what this whiskey's going to do i don't know where are you kind of coming out on the value here
0: um i think it is a solid value um i i still i would honestly compare this to like a quinta rubin and the price of quinta rubin has gone up a little bit if you've been with the podcast for any amount of time you know that we rave about that scotch The price right now in Ohio for that has moved from $52 when we started buying it to $58. So in my mind, this is like right in the same range as a Keen to Rubin. I would say that this is a slightly lesser but comparable product. So I would put it at like a 7.5 out of 10 on value. I think it is a solid value for what you're getting, which is a really
1: beautiful entry into the world of European whiskey. Yeah, I'm I'm going to give it a six and a half on value. I'm right there with you. I just, I, it's a little bit pricier than I'd like it to be. If it was sub $60, I think it'd be a, a much higher score for me, but that still brings me out to a 40 out of 50. And I think if I've calculated yours correctly, Brad, are you at a 41? Man, look at you doing math. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, I, I've learned a lot in the off season here. <laughs> so that's bringing us out to an 81 out of a hundred or an average of a 40.5 out of 50. Anything that goes over that 40 mark is usually an automatic yes from us. And it's going to be for me today. I think if you can can find a bottle of this, it is well worth trying. And it's a really unique story of a whiskey to have on your shelf.
0: Yeah, it's a great offering. Whenever you have friends who have drank all the bourbons that there are to drink, uh, get them something like this. Expand the horizons, jump
1: into something new, and, and you can't do better than Pandera and Madeira. All right, man. Well, let's carry this positive energy back into our episode where we are now going to dump on all the things wrong with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one. What do you say? Time to dump.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was Pandaren Madeira, a whiskey that Bob and I both are just impressed with. Uh, Honestly, Bob, I know we have more of
1: it on the slate for the season, so I'm pumped to get to it. Yeah, man, the next two weeks are going to be pretty delicious, if that was any indication.
0: Yeah, but we are back here talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. You know, Bob, we spent a lot of time really gushing about the movie in the first half. For me, though, there's definitely aspects of this movie that are a little bit rough. And for me, this might be a personal thing. But I actually struggled with the way they portray Harry and Hermione's relationship in this. And the reason for that is because I desperately and rightly so believe that Harry and Hermione should have ended up together. Mm -hmm. Um, JK Rowling herself tweeted it out at some point that she thinks that she made a mistake in putting Hermione and Ron together. So I know that I'm in the right here, but it almost feels like too much of a tease, the two of them like dancing together and hugging and having alone time where you can see that they genuinely deeply care for one another. Mm-hmm. And I will say, I'm not sitting here saying that men and women can't have deep relationships that are that are not romantically involved. Like I I have many female friends who I care very deeply for, but have no romantic interest in because I'm only romantically interested in my wife. That's great. But daggone it, Bob, I want her, Harry and Hermione together.
1: (laughs) Well, your, your, uh, support for Harry and Hermione is well documented throughout all the episodes we've done. I agree with you. I do think that they probably knew their audience and they know the audience wants Harry and Hermione together and they're playing into that again, having not read the book. I'm going to just go ahead and assume that they were probably maybe embellishing a little bit and adding stuff to like milk it even further with the will they won't they kind of thing. I don't know, man. I I feel like I'm with you and I'm also not because I do like that. We see the maturity of both of these people that there's this unspoken thing, but they don't act on it and they decide not to act on it. And I really like that. However, I think that teasing us as much as they did with what is very clearly an attraction between these two people and to the point where Hermione even says, like, let's just stop. Like, let's just give up and stay here and grow old together. I was like, yes, yeah. I'll watch that. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'll watch that movie. I'm in. Yeah. Voldemort I'm can in. hunt you forever. <laughs> and you guys can just be in love. You know, I'm down with it. But to give us that and then never give us a verbal like we can't do this. I'm not saying they didn't make the right choice, and I know it would be kind of hokey, and it would be something we don't necessarily need, quote unquote, for them to say out loud their motivations. But if you're going to tease us that much, I feel like you almost need to give us a scene where they verbally say to each other, I like Ginny, I like Ron, we're not going to go any further with this, because otherwise it's like you're continuing to tantalize us into the eighth movie. Bob,
0: we've made it
1: nearly 40 minutes into this episode, and you have
0: finally mentioned Ginny. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to just dismiss the things that you just said because I'm with you 100%. But can we just have like a quick funeral service for like any amount of acting talent that Bonnie Wright might have had
1: at some point in her life? Yeah, man. Once again, once again, not great in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, she. You know what she does, and I. I feel
0: bad saying this because I know it's a movie you love, but I feel like she does what Julianne Moore does a ton in Children of Men. She just rushes her lines. Hmm. Like she there's yeah, no. She does that in every movie too. In every movie, there's no commas. There's no periods. Like she just <laughs> rushes through her lines. It's like ancient Greek. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh man, the seminary jokes. Uh, oh, if, if you've ever studied ancient uh, Hebrew or Greek
1: literature, you you know what we're talking you're, about. You're rolling in the aisles right now. Oh man. It's a very niche joke, that one.
0: <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I I didn't want to talk about it. For as long as possible, but Bonnie Wright is so bad. Why does Harry like her? Like, I know that the books are not the movies, and, but even in the books, I didn't totally get why he liked Jenny. But your imagination can come up with like an attractive female that Harry likes. Uh, but then you watch the movie and you're like, nope, nope, Bonnie Wright, you can't act. I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: Yeah, man. I don't even know where to go with that. I think we've said what we need to say about the character of Ginny. Brad, I huh, can I steer us in a different direction? Oh, 100%. Let's, okay, get, out good. Of that. Let's get out of those waters. <laughs> Let's steer out of that skid here. All right. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I guess this is a good place to ask you about it. I've always wondered about how do you properly estimate a sequel and how good a sequel is? because a sequel is necessarily like it doesn't have to pull the weight of whatever came before it you know what i'm saying like it always has the benefit of you don't have to reintroduce characters you don't have to reintroduce like these these certain plot points you're just they're just assumed and i think a lot of times we give credit to sequels in a way that's like yeah but would you give credit to that if it wasn't based on something you've already seen so like i think about a show like better call saul which is a really good tv show but i think people have been saying for years now that it's the best thing on tv and i'm like i don't see that and i think it's just the level of familiarity you have with breaking bad and then when like a character from breaking bad shows up on the show you go oh it's that guy you know what i mean like there it's the kind of fan servicey thing that you saw in the star wars sequels where you know and chewbacca would show up and you'd be like oh my god it's chewbacca but yeah in- we're weird looking chewbacca that doesn't even look like himself <laughs> but like in in the context of that story as like a standalone thing chewbacca showing up shouldn't be a big deal but they're just playing on the fact that you know chewbacca because you've seen this other thing and i've always kind of wondered like do we give sequels too much credit when they're actually just relying on the work that all the other movies did before it, you know what I'm saying? No, I, I'm right there with you, man. I, I think that, I think that this, the
0: sign of a really good sequel is when they take the work done by the first movie or the first season of a television show or what, you know, whatever iteration of a sequel you're talking about is when they take the work done by the first part and and deepen it exponentially like in my mind a really good first movie like if you were if you were like i don't know drawing out a story arc i feel like you need almost a little bit of a rise in the first movie and then it slowly dips towards like the depths right the like the dark part of the story and then the second movie takes that and just nose dives like you're going down the freaking millennium forest. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, I mean, I guess I don't know where you're going with this in terms of Harry Potter because, well, I guess, I don't know. Is a sequel only the second movie in a series? Is this a sequel? I don't know. I've uh, I don't just know. Been kind you...
1: of thinking about it. And like, this might not even be the appropriate episode to have this conversation. But I think it's just something that we should keep in mind moving forward when we talk about sequel movies. Because- I was thinking about uh, Alan Rickman as Snape, and he's only in this movie very briefly. Um, And of course, he plays a much bigger role in the final movie, which I'm going to spoil some stuff about right now. So if you don't want to hear that, skip ahead about one minute. But, you know, at the end of the eighth movie, we find out that Snape was a double agent all along and that he loved Lily so much and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, people people go crazy about the Snape fan fiction and stuff, whatever. But. I think the thing that that always kind of bothered me about that subplot is I think it shows very clearly that J.K. Rowling was still working on these stories as they were being published. But like Snape doesn't come across that way at all for like six of the seven books. And then the seventh book, it's like, oh, this was the plan the whole time. You guys just didn't see it. And like, you know, even in this movie, there's that thing where Snape gets installed as headmaster of Hogwarts and you hear about the fact that like students are being tortured by Death Eaters. And I understand that there's supposed to be this big ruse that they're all playing and, you know, Snape has to play his part until, you know, the, the his final sacrifice or whatever. But it's like, did you really think this through JK Rowling? Or did you just, like, paint yourself in a corner and then you were like, oh, no, Snape was a good guy the whole time? And and I kind of think about that with things like this, where it's like, all right, you're you're going to give credit to the eighth movie for, like, this incredible reveal of Snape's true character. But, like, movies one through seven don't really give any indication that that's the case.
0: Uh, honestly, Bob... It- I I think that the premise of what you're talking about can be true. I actually don't think it's true in this case. Hmm, Okay. Uh, For me, reading through the books, watching the movies, I, I do think that they do a, at the very least you, you might be right, but at the very least they do a good job of explaining why Snape hates Harry so much throughout the books you know that this idea that this is the child with of the woman he desperately loved uh, sired by the man he desperately hated mm-hmm. and so with harry's you know seeming arrogance with the way he plays quidditch with the way he's the hero the center point of a lot of hogwarts you know drama and stories while snape is a, a teacher there it makes sense to me why Snape hated Harry so much and yet was still willing to sacrifice on his behalf in the yeah, end of all
1: things. I get that. I, this was probably a bad example. It just kind of got me thinking about it. And I'll probably bring yeah. it up again like when we get to episode three of the Star Wars movies when we do that this season because, you know, while I think that's the best of the prequels, I still don't think that it perfectly demonstrates like just what a tragedy it is to see Anakin become Darth Vader, and I think it's because they rely too much on the iconography of Darth Vader that you're already used to instead of really diving deep into, like, creating the Darth Vader character in, in that movie. So we'll we'll talk about it more when we get there. I think it's just something we need to be aware of when we watch sequel movies. Are we giving credit to the movie as it stands on its own, or are we crediting the movie When it's actually just standing on the shoulders of the movie that came before it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure. Uh, Honestly, for me, I don't
0: even give a rip about that question anymore. I just want to know, what do you call middle movies in a like multi-movie cinematic universe? Hmm. Like, are they all sequels? Are they just like forgotten middle children? I I, like, I really need (laughs) to know this answer now.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I think we should just call it the forgotten middle child. Okay, That's I, I'm in, man. The FMC. The FMCs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, we have talked at length about this movie. I think this is a really underrated film. I also think that we could get too far down the rabbit hole of hyping it up. Like, this is not a 10 out of 10 movie. I don't even think this is a 9 out of 10 movie. It works very well, uh, but it is probably one of the lesser entries in the overall Harry Potter franchise or you know at least it's like a middle chapter for me i've been kind of waffling between a seven and a half and an eight and before the ending of the movie happened i was like yeah this is like a seven and a half it's good but it's a little flabby and then you know the scene with dobby happened and i was like a puddle and i was like like this (laughs) this is really well made uh i'm gonna come out in an eight out of ten and i i could be swayed one way or another on that but that's where i'm landing now brad you know, Bob, I, I think that for
0: me, this is probably my second or third favorite of the whole franchise. You know, I've I've always really, really liked it. I just remember walking away from that movie thinking, holy cow, that was beautiful. And it was different than anything I'd seen before in the Harry Potter universe. So for me, I, I would put this up there with Quaron's entry, with the Half Blood Prince. Um, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Wow. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And this is probably my third, maybe fourth time watching it. And I I will say it has only gotten better with time for me. So I'll give it a 9 out of 10. It's not a perfect movie. I would probably say that the sixth one is still my favorite. But
1: this is up there, man. I like it a lot. All right. There you have it. Brad gives it a 9 out of 10. I gave it an 8 for an average of an 8. but we'd like to know what you think of this movie. Is it the best of all Harry Potters? Is it the worst of all Harry Potters? You can get at us on our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at... Film whiskey,
0: or if you really want to communicate with us personally, one-on-one, Bob and I spend tons of time on our Discord. If you've never heard of Discord before, it is literally just a platform where we can communicate through text. We can jump on to a voice chat together. There's all sorts of options to hang out with us, talk movies, talk whiskey, talk sports, and uh, we just we do it all over there, Bob. Um, so check it out. You can find a link to our Discord. In the show notes, uh, you can download it on your phone, on your computer. But yeah, we'd love to chat with you guys there.
1: And if you're feeling especially generous, you can become a Patreon patron. We have three tiers that you can subscribe at three, five and seven dollars per month. You get perks like exclusive discord access to a patron only account. You get early episodes. You get NSFW episodes of film and whiskey. All these bleeps are gone <laughs> on the Patreon. So please consider joining us at patreoncom slash film Next week, we are going to look at Brad's first film for season five. As you guys know, we've picked 15 movies apiece just to kind of shoot the breeze about. For the most part, we're going to be doing them in random order. But next week, we have a very special guest, YouTuber and filmmaker Patrick H. Willems is going to be joining us for the 1963 classic Charade. Brad, I cannot wait for that episode, man dude i i am just i'm like bouncing in my chair right now man i am so jazzed (laughs) well we'll see you next week for charade but until then i'm bob book i'm brad g and we'll see you next time